Amen. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 935 and 936. We will be looking in Acts chapter 26 this morning, beginning in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Well, this is God's Word for the people of God, His holy, inerrant, infallible, and therefore authoritative truth. So let us give our attention to it. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophet's I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice And those who were sitting with him, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. O Lord, as many of us experienced this morning, the drops of rain coming down, might we have the image of your word pressed upon our hearts that you who would send water and snow to nourish and replenish the earth, that right now you might send forth your word to nourish and replenish our hearts, that we would see and long for Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were not with us last week, we began in chapter 25 and verse 13 and read the finishing parts of chapter 25, and as you saw this morning, we read into chapter 26. And we've just finished that chapter, but I want to 
remind us, put us back into context of where did we just pick up. Paul has been in Caesarea for two years. He's not hanging out. He's not enjoying his time. He's in prison. He's been in Caesarea for two years in prison. And he had appealed to Caesar. And he appealed to Caesar because he wanted to go to Caesar rather than go back to Jerusalem and stand trial before the Jews. And therefore, we've had these encounters with different officials. Festus, we heard of Agrippa and Bernice. They were uh, mentioned early in chapter 26. They, they were uh, coming into town. They were coming to meet with Paul. And in fact, they gave Paul the right, the ability to speak on his own behalf. He didn't need an attorney or someone speaking on his, uh, for him. He got to give to himself his own report. This is Paul's last major message in the book of Acts. It's his final defense, third defense if you were with us for some time. And he's recounted his conversion, his testimony. Luke has told us three different occasions by which Paul is telling us what took place in his life. And we mentioned it especially in Acts chapter 21, that is Luke just trying to repeat himself for some, no, uh, some odd reason? He's trying to fill up space. And we said, no. If you were with us when we were looking in Acts chapter 9, Luke was reporting the facts. This is what happened in Paul's life, or at that time, it was Saul. On his way to Damascus, this is what took place in Saul, who would then become Paul. Acts chapter 21, he's, he's talking in the first person. Luke's not describing it. It's Paul. He's using, he's quoting Paul himself, and he's saying this is actually what the gospel message is. He's, he's defending the gospel, the truth. He's explaining it. And then again here, what is he doing? Are you following what Luke has been doing? I think he's giving to us this ever-increasing pressure of what it means to hold firm to the truth. What is it that you really believe, Paul? What are the extents? What's the limit by which you will let go? Or in the words of the Reformation, if you'll just recant, how far will you go, Paul? And so I think Luke is actually doing something for us. It's simple. Perhaps you might even say it's subtle. But do you see it? Perhaps what Luke is doing is he's saying, do you see Paul? Do you see what he's doing? Do, do you see what he is saying? Do you see how he is saying it? Pay attention. Give ear. Because when you have to defend the gospel, how will you do it? Here's a model. What does it look like to be an image bearer who holds firmly to God's truth? Could we not look at the Apostle Paul and this ever-increasing hostility of what it means to be faithful to the gospel as a model for us? You remember it's, it's Paul who's going to tell Timothy, Timothy, you need to be prepared you need to be prepared in season and out of season to preach and proclaim the word. Peter, we love to talk about this verse in 1 Peter 3. 
You need to be prepared. What? For the hope. For the hope that you have in Jesus, you need to be prepared to give an answer because you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, have hope. And what you're looking at with Paul is the invaluable measure of his hope in the gospel that even before some of the highest officials, not in the land, but dare we say in the world, that you might proclaim this hope. Last week, Pastor Schmidt began this sermon, this two-part sermon, and he started with right, not religion, talking about Paul's defense, and he had another point, alive, not dead. And if you were with us, he's already told you my two points, so there's no shockers. Uh, It's always nice when someone gives to you what they want you to say. It makes the preparation piece a little easier. And so our two points have not changed from last week. True, not crazy, and humble, not proud. True, not crazy, and humble, not proud. I'm sure your attention was grabbed as you were hearing Paul beginning his defense before King Agrippa and Bernice, and Festus is there, and he's providing this defense. But he doesn't actually have to provide a defense, you see. He's actually not on trial. What you're looking at is a It's a matter of procedure. And so what they are doing is they're they're gathering information. That is Agrippa and Bernice, and perhaps in some ways Festus. They're gathering this information because they have to provide a report to the Caesar. Before this prisoner finds his way before Caesar, they have to say, this is what it's about. You need to be somewhat prepared of what you're going to hear. And so all they're doing here is not to judge him, but simply to hear from him. What do you have to say? And you and I need to know that because what you notice here in this third defense that is different than his second is he's not responding. He's not replying to many of the charges that have been brought up because that's not his aim. The goal of what Paul is doing here is not trying to make his case for his innocence and why he should be let go. No, he's making his case for the gospel and it's truth. And so Paul begins in verse 19 and he tells King Agrippa, I have not been disobedient to the vision, to the commission that God has given me, that commission that we heard in verse 18, that he, or 16 through 18, that he's to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles, that their eyes would be open that they would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they, in fact, might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. That is Jesus' vision. It's his mission for Paul. And Paul says, I've been obedient to that. I have not disobeyed. I I am faithfully fulfilling the calling that you have given to me. And then he begins his report Let me show you how I've been obedient. And that's what verse 20 is telling us. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. And what is it that he's been declaring? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And Paul says, 
I've, I've been declaring these things to all of these people. That's why they've seized me. That's why they've, they've taken me. But I've been helped. Don't you appreciate how Luke describes it? I've been, I've been helped to this day. I have had the help that comes from God. I'm still here. I'm testifying. I'm proclaiming truth, not because I'm some mighty man, but because I have a mighty God who is, in fact, helping me. And then he goes on and he makes it very bold, doesn't he? He goes, everything that I've said, it's, it's not new. It, it's written in the scriptures. The prophets have told you. Moses has told you this. I'm not telling you anything that has not, in fact, already been outlined for you. That Christ must suffer. And then he must rise from the dead. And that his gospel must go forth to all the nations. And you, you begin to see the scene, don't you? This is Paul. He's giving his defense. He's made really good points. And Festus interrupts. Not to give him a round of applause. Good job, Paul. Amen, brother. What does he say to Paul? Paul, you are out of your mind. Or depending on your translation, Paul, you are mad. If you understood the Greek there, you could probably see what's happening. Maniac. That's the English word that we get from the Greek. Actually, the Latin. In the Latin Vulgate, we get the word insane. Do you see what Festus is saying? Paul, we know that you are a smart man, but you've outdone yourself. There's a thin line between genius and insanity, and brother, you have leaped over it. You're crazy. You have lost it. And we should not listen to you. Don't you appreciate what Paul says in response to Festus? I'm not out of my mind. I'm not crazy. I'm speaking true and rational words. Do you see it, friends? What is Paul saying to him? Festus, you're just chucking this up to religion. You think it has nothing to do with you. Let me help you understand what I'm talking about. Let me sober you for a moment, most excellent Festus. This is truth. It's a sobering, eternally significant, unchanging truth. You must give ear to this. It's true. It's not because I like it. It's because this is what God has said and what God has done. And what is this truth that Paul has been proclaiming? He gives to us these two facets of it in his defense. Did you see what he began in verse 20? I've declared it to Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, Gentiles, and what am I declaring? That they should repent. That they should repent. That everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. That we are all enemies of God. We are by nature objects of wrath. We are children of the devil. We do not long, we do not love the things of God. And we must 
repent. It's not a term we like to use as much anymore in the church, is it? It's become a little churchy, and so we soften it. And we say it just means, say, I'm sorry. You know, we have to do this with our children when they make mistakes. Our youngest, I I quite appreciate his view of this. When he makes a mistake and we say, you need to say, I'm sorry, you need to apologize. His understanding is, if I say it, then I get what I want. I'm sorry, can I have my treat? It's a magic word, you see. It's the appropriate password for all of my good things I want in life. That's not repentance. It's not a magic word that we, if we just say it, well, we'll just get whatever we want. J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology, has a very full definition. Listen to how he describes repentance. The New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that, here's the purpose, we must change our mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly, mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes, all are involved. Repenting, he says, means starting to live a new life. And Paul is saying, we need to repent and we need to turn to God. And you, you heard it and you thought, this is not, it's not new. You've been following along in the Gospels and, and you remember John the Baptist, he began his ministry by talking about repentance. And even if you wanted to stay in the book of Acts, you remember Peter at Pentecost, what does he begin his sermon with? Repentance, we need to repent. And if John the Baptist wasn't enough, if Peter's not enough, if Paul's not enough, how about the Lord Jesus who begins his ministry with repentance? And he doesn't just begin his ministry with repentance. Have you ever considered what Jesus says in his glorified state to the churches in Revelation? There's seven of them. And out of the seven, five, Jesus tells, you need to repent. We must repent. Sinners in the sight of God. And I just wonder, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that the gospel message that you share? That we live in a sinful world and people, you, me, perhaps family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, those whom are in bondage to darkness, we don't say, come to Jesus and your life will get better. What gospel message do you proclaim to others? Is it a message of repentance or self-help?
Do a few things like this and your life will get better. We want to have a gospel that is faithful to God's word, not one that might better be received by a dark world. And so Paul begins his defense and he says, there's an issue here. It's true. And what is it that's true? We need to repent. We need to turn to God. Now, we're not meant to just kick them and tell them how awful they are so that they feel bad about themselves. Did you see the second part of what Paul says? It's not just a matter of repentance. It's also a matter of resurrection. Now, we heard about that last week. It shows up in verse 8, and it shows up again here. We can see it. It's in verse 23, and it's because it's foundational to being a Christian. We hold doctrinally to the resurrection. We believe in it. Your life in Christ is built upon it. And so we have to remember how important that doctrine truly is. It's why Paul, when he's talking to the church at Corinth, do you remember what he says to them? If there is no resurrection, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are misrepresenting God. We're lying about who God really is and what he's done. And we are still in our sin. And those who have died, who have perished, and we are to be pitied because hope is only here and now. We don't just believe in a doctrine of repentance. We must believe in a doctrine of resurrection that the Lord Jesus Christ, what he truly did on the cross was sufficient and he did not just die, but he actually rose from the dead, granting to us not only new life, but hope in a resurrected life. Not just here, but there. That is glory with God our Father. And so Paul is saying to Festus, I'm not crazy. This is true. And maybe some people want to say, of course it's not. No dead people are risen from the dead. That, that doesn't happen. It's, it's a stretch. We can't believe in something like that. Nobody in the Bible would actually believe in a resurrection. C.S. Lewis, he he actually does a great deal talking about glory, about the resurrection, but he's got this, it's not really a book, it's, it's more of a, a collection of essays. And it's entitled God in the Dock. And this is what he says about the resurrection. But there is one thing often said about our ancestors. He's talking about the Bible and even those whom are after the Bible, uh, great heroes of the faith, he says, there's something often said about our ancestors, which we must not say. We must not say they believed in miracles because they did not know the laws of nature. Do you hear what he's saying here? Yes, of course, some of those people in the Bible must have believed it. They didn't know any better. They're not smart enough. They didn't understand the laws of nature. This is where C.S. Lewis continues. He says, this is nonsense, when St. Joseph, he's talking about Mary and Joseph, discovered that his bride was pregnant, he was minded to put her away. He knew enough about biology for that. 
Something there said, something has happened, and it wasn't on my part. He understood something miraculous has taken place. When the disciples saw Christ walking on the water, they were frightened. They would not have been frightened unless they had known the laws of nature and known that this was an exception. If it was normal for people to walk on water, there would be no reason for them to be afraid. But they understood what took place if you attempt to walk on water. Do you hear what he's saying? It's not an issue because they weren't smart enough or they didn't have the laws of nature. It's an issue of truth. It's a matter of truth. Is this truth? Festus is calling him crazy because his God is power. Because as one commentator would say it, Festus was more concerned about might and materialism than actual truth. And so he must say something to the effect, you're crazy that you would believe a dead man would rise. We hear something like that, don't we? It doesn't necessarily come out that way today. Sometimes we hear this phrase, Christianity, it's a, it's a crutch. You must believe in the Bible and Christianity because it's a crush. You're, you're, you're too afraid to confront reality. It's your way of escape so that you don't have to deal with really what's in front of you. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he's got, a, he's got several of these little books, these crucial questions. And he's, one of them is, does God exist? And he's outlining in that book how the world often views Christianity. And he says, we can't, we can't bear that message. That's what the world would say. You can't bear the fact that people die and that there's problems in the world. And so you, you hold to this Jesus person. But you recognize, friends, don't you, what does Paul have to say in Romans chapter one? What is he saying? It's not Christians who can't bear the message. It's non-Christians because truth gets presented to them and they have to suppress it. And they create it to be a lie. And then they work their entire lives to cover up their shame, their nakedness, as it were, only to find out at the end they are still, in fact, naked. And so Paul is saying, I am not, I'm not crazy. This is true. It's true truths. And he makes a risky move, doesn't he? Festus calls him crazy, but he doesn't really address Festus outside of saying, I'm not crazy. Who does he address? King Agrippa. And did you see what he said to King Agrippa? He doesn't just say, I'm, I'm not crazy. What does he do? What does he say to this king? You know what I'm talking about, King Agrippa. And you know what I'm saying is true. Why is he saying that? Agrippa would have been known in at least the empire, the Roman empire, as something of a Jewish authority. You know, his, his past, him personally, but his, his ancestors, the Herodian dynasty, they've had lots, you've heard it last week, a lot of run-ins with the, the Jewish people. 
mostly very unfavorable in how they have treated it. And so King Agrippa, he knows about the Jewish beliefs. He, he knows about their understanding and his title, King Agrippa, it's not a super significant one as it pertains to the government of Rome. Caesar's obviously at the top, but when he gets that title king, what it does is it makes him curator of the temple. And with that, it gives him a responsibility, a privilege to choose the high priest. And so you can kind of see Agrippa has got one foot in both camps. I'm I'm for the Roman government, but there's something about me that represents the spirits of Judaism. I have influence there. And so Paul turns the question on him. It's very risky, very bold. What are you, you going to say, Agrippa? You know that this is true. And why, Agrippa, do you know this is true? Because it's, he said it's not been done in a corner. What is he saying? It's not a secret Christianity is not for like the, the initiates. You've been initiated, so now you can hear something of this truth. It's not some secret club. It's not some mystery. It's not been done in a back alley somewhere. Everyone knows about it. Everyone sees it. Agrippa, you know that. Because who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. Yes, Agrippa. The one in which... Your great-grandfather was so well aware he killed all those babies. Jesus' birth was a public event. Jesus' life as he was growing up was public. His ministry was public. His teaching was public. His death was public. And so too his resurrection. Now that ought to caution us for a moment. You see, we live in a world, a church world, dare I say it, that want to say things like this. My faith is private. Friends, you need to hear me say this very clearly. If that's you, you need to repent. If in your hearts you're saying, my faith is a personal private faith, you don't have a Christian faith. There's nothing private about Christ. Every part of his life, his teaching, his ministry, and his work is public. And he goes as far as to say, if you deny me in public, then you're not one of mine. And so we must be very careful when we try to talk about our faith and go, I don't want to say anything because it's a matter of private. Christianity is never a private matter. It's for the world. And if you have seen what Paul has seen, this hope in Jesus, it'll never remain private in your heart. It can't. It will come out because it must come out. No hope can be so tightly wound in our heart as not to give it away. And so Paul puts Agrippa in a tricky situation. If Agrippa says to Paul, yes, I do believe, then you can see Paul's going to keep pushing. Then why don't you believe it? Why have you not come to Christ? Why does it not organize and dictate and determine your life? So Agrippa can't say, yes, I believe it. But he can't say no. If he says no, he's gonna lose all of his influence with the Jewish people. 
If he says the scriptures are not true, what they have said are not real, he loses all of his public influence. And so he puts him in a very unique situation. What is Paul saying? I'm not crazy. This is true. And you can see it for yourself. But it's not just a matter of true, not crazy. There's a humble, not proud. Paul is providing very strong words. Bold words, he says. But you recognize humility doesn't mean that you don't speak boldly. It means you speak respectfully. It's not a compromise of truth. It's a respectful truth. You still tell them the truth. You just don't yell it at them. You don't try to overwhelm them and bomb them with it. You love them with it. And so let me get this scene for you of what you're looking at. If you go back into chapter 25 and you find out Agrippa and Bernice, they've come into town. Do you remember what Luke tells us about their coming into town? It comes in verse, let me find it, verse 23. So the next So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Here's the scene. They're in an auditorium, an audience hall. There is a lot of people here to see. And who's all in there? Did you see that word that Luke used to describe it? They come in with what? Great pomp. Do you know what the... Greek word there is for pomp, fantasia. And you could see the English there, can't you? We get the English word fantasy. This is what Luke is saying. Here's the picture. We've got a, we've got a entertaining picture. We've got King Agrippa. We've got Bernice. They're probably wearing some kind of royal purple attire. They've got the most prominent people dressed in their best. The military, they look sharp. Everybody is here. It's a big festival. Then you hear the click-clack, click-clack sounds of Paul coming in with chains. You know, the only description ever given in ancient literature of Paul, a man short in stature, with a bald head, bowed legs, in good condition, eyebrows that met, a fairly large nose, and full of grace. Now, maybe to explain why he was single, but you recognize... (laughs) Shouldn't have said that. But did you hear the ending of that? A man full of grace. He comes in. Maybe it's a Martin Luther-esque picture. Someone who's in rags... He's got chains and he's standing before the mightiest of men. And yet, what does he have to say? Let me tell you who Jesus is. He's been accused of being crazy and instead he defends the gospel. It's work. He presents that question to Agrippa. Do you believe it? I know you do. And you can hear it in his tone, can't you? When Agrippa responds, 
Paul. In such a short time, did you think that you were going to persuade me to be a Christian? I'm not one of those weak-minded people that you find on the streets. I'm King Agrippa. I'm a learned man. You're not going to win me so quickly. It's not that easy, Paul. And yet, maybe you've said to yourself, Paul, you tried so hard. You're so close. You gave your best effort, but, but you came up short. Paul's not hanging his head, friends. He's not discouraged in some sense of, man, I have failed and I could not do it. Paul hasn't compromised truth or his doctrine. He knows that salvation is of the Lord. And it is Paul who is going to say, God uses the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. What Paul is doing is he's recognizing the real tragedy here. He's standing before these pompous people in chains, and yet what he recognizes is it's not my imprisonment that's the problem, it's theirs. My chains are but a barrier. Theirs is a destiny. And so he says, whether short or long, I will give everything that I have that you would receive Christ. Please come to him. And he preaches with all boldness. What would that look like? It's many months ago, we talked about him, Hugh Latimer. He was, a, he was a great preacher in England during his time. And uh, on one occasion, they were supposed to give good gifts, probably monetary in value, to be honest, to King Henry VIII. And Latimer decided he was going to give him a copy of the New Testament. That didn't go over well. But he was brought in to preach before King Henry VIII. And he preaches to a degree that King Henry VIII was offended, he was upset. He sent Paul away, or, uh, Latimer away, and he said, you're gonna have to do this next week, but when you come back, you better do it right, and you better come with an apology. Latimer comes back. This is what he says. He's kind of reading this letter to himself in front of King Henry VIII. So he's using his own name. Hugh Latimer Dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak to the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest? Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest? Upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And he preached the exact same sermon. You see the humility see the boldness of what it would mean to speak truth 
in a very trying situation. What do we do with a text like this? Paul is, he's giving a defense on a matter of truth, on a matter of humility. And can't you see it when you pair truth and humility, the kind of strength that comes together? And he doesn't have to be afraid because he has that promise that Jesus has given to all of his people in Luke chapter 12. Don't worry. My spirit present in you will give you the words to say. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do your best to know what to say. It's saying, you can trust me. It's going to be okay. And now I understand that most of us will probably never find ourselves in that kind of an environment where the persecution that we are standing in front of has to do with our life and our death. But you can relate, can't you, to the temptation, the paralysis of fear. When before man, I'm afraid to speak truth because I'm afraid of what they might say. I'm afraid of my reputation. I'm afraid of my position at work or in society or even in the church. You can recognize the fear, can't you, and how often it keeps us quiet. But I think what Paul is saying, I think what Luke is trying to drive us to is there's a great measure of comfort, of confidence That if you're a Christian in here and you have the truth of God, you have everything that you need. And it's not because you are true. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one whom Paul has just said, he's risen from the dead and he has proclaimed very clearly, I am the way and the truth And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have everything in that one verse to present something of repentance and something of resurrection. And you can do it boldly. Might we be a church? Might you be a Christian who with great hope would preach and proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you that in our darkness, our ignorance, our rebellion, our weakness, our sin, you sent forth your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, That even as we as a church this morning confessed, if we would but confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we would be saved. If that's a true truth in our hearts, if it's it's a shift in identity from one kingdom to another, we have great hope. And so might we be blood-bought people with hope boldly proclaiming truth. We be a blood-bought people boldly living truth that people would see what it means to repent.
and to have hope in the resurrected Christ because they have seen us. They know our hope and therefore they know Jesus. So strengthen us this morning as a church that we might have such a confidence and a comfort in Christ that we would stand firm. And yet maybe we should boldly say for those who hear right now and do not know such a confidence, might you show your resurrected power and save them. Open their eyes. Bring forth forgiveness of sin because they have their life counted in Christ Jesus and therefore his righteousness accredited to them. And all for Jesus' sake we pray.